0: Welcome back to The Julie Norman Show, a podcast on ethics, policy, and current affairs. As many of you listening know, I live in London, and last week was the first time since before corona, so probably since the beginning of March, that I actually rode on a train instead of just walking or biking somewhere. And while it was nice in a way to be on a quiet almost empty train it was also kind of eerie like trains in london are supposed to be busy so it was a reminder to me that however much things seem to be going back to some kind of normal You know, cities like London won't really be normal again until people can get around safely and, you know, as readily as they used to. Um, So the issue of transportation is just going to be really central to that. And that, that was pretty clear to me that day. And last week also marked the passing of U.S. civil rights icon John Lewis, so literally while I was on the train, I was reading about you know Lewis's past and his history and especially about his role in the freedom rides when Lewis and other civil rights activists at great risk to themselves rode interstate buses through the American South to force a Supreme Court decision around desegregation. And I was just you know reflecting that, you know, so much of the civil rights movement. As well as other activism, how much they are often intertwined with again transportation, whether it's um, bus boycotts, um, you know, blocking a bridge, um, you know, the Freedom Rides, and so that that intersection of uh, activism and, and transportation was something I was just reflecting on a bit too. So, you know, while transportation might seem rather banal, just something that we do or something that we use to get around, I've been thinking more just about how it does intersect with pretty much everything, and especially with a lot of the issues that I tend to work on or think a lot about um, activism, equality, climate, security, development, you name it. So to discuss these topics a bit more, I decided to invite Mark Norman onto the podcast today. Full disclosure, Mark Norman is my dad. We're very family-friendly podcast, Um, and he's awesome, so I could have him on to talk about any number of things. But I did want to have him on today because he spent most of his life as a transportation engineer. He still works in that field. And he's working always on just these types of issues, not the road design side of transportation per se, but more how the choices we make about how we get around, whether that's as individuals or collectively, how those decisions impact people, policy, and communities, So I wanted to have him on to talk about that. And not only that, but outside of his day job, he has spent the last two decades working in a volunteer capacity, helping people who are homeless or who are formerly incarcerated find work and jobs. And so we touched on that in this conversation a little bit as well. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you will too. So here's my conversation with Mark Norman. Mark Norman, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, thank you, Julie. Glad to be here.
0: So, I just wanted to start by asking, why does transportation matter? Like we all obviously have to get from point A and point B, but like what makes it interesting? Like why would why would you choose to work on that?
1: Yeah, so I think the first thing to Keep in mind that we always try to remind ourselves as transportation professionals is that you know, transportation is not an end in itself. Uh, it means it's a means to to multiple ends, many many ends. Uh, it defines uh, to a large extent uh, our way of life, uh, impacting impacting all of the aspects of just about everything that we do. Uh, we think about the uh, impacts of the on the economy. Uh, our access to uh, work and to play, and uh, and of course, uh, just enabling us to uh, enjoy human contacts, which is we especially appreciate in this time right now with with, uh, with COVID. Um, so so again, I think the main point with transportation is not so much getting from A to B, as you said, but but providing access to, to people to jobs to, and to uh, and and to goods. Of course, transportation can also have negative consequences, which, which matters, which matter as well. Uh, and first and foremost of those is safety. Uh, motor vehicle transportation is responsible for 1.2 million deaths a year worldwide. So, you know, think about that. Think about that number and compare it to some of the others, COVID-19 being foremost in our minds right now, I guess. Uh, Uh, to date around the world. COVID has resulted in 650,000 deaths. So each year, every year, motor vehicle accidents and crashes are responsible for twice that many, twice that many deaths. And then of course you go on to the negative, potential negative impacts on the environment, uh, traffic congestion, and then back to the COVID issue, uh, the the spread of pandemics where transportation is a a major cause of, of that. So, so. You know, I guess that's some of the reasons why I think uh, transportation matters so much, and why I'm so interested uh, in, in it.
0: Yeah, and I'll come back to some of those issues in just a minute. But what, like, how did you first start working in this field and in this area?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So I was uh, in college, civil engineering courses, uh, going for my undergraduate degree in civil engineering. <laughs> As I got to my senior year, I started to question whether I really wanted to do that for the rest of my life. Uh, in civil engineering, as in most other uh, branches of engineering, when you get to the numerical answer, you're done. And to me, that just wasn't that fulfilling. I came from a very politi- politically active family, uh, very very much uh, had high degree of social consciousness, and I just didn't see crunching a number, bunch of numbers as, as being a, a, a whole career. Uh, so I took one course in senior year in transportation engineering. And there, the professor made a point that I'll always remember. He said, okay, in most branches of engineering, when you do the computation and you reach the numerical answer, you're done. But in transportation engineering, you've just begun. Uh, you've just begun because once you, once you figure out the numbers, then you have to work with elected officials. You have to, to work directly with the public. You have to be involved with, with, the, with the media. Uh, all of these transportation decisions have social consequences and environmental and some of the things we've already mentioned a minute ago. So if you're interested in those kinds of things beyond the numbers, then transportation engineering is the, is the career for you. And uh, I that convinced me, and uh, I continued my studies and focused on transportation, and, uh, and here I am.
0: Yeah, and I know you've always talked about that people side, the policy side, and I think also the ethical side of transportation that I don't think many of us just normal commuters and whatnot think about. So I was wondering if you could just speak more about what some of the big issues are in the field right now especially those that maybe have some kind of ethical component to them.
1: Sure. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of them. So let me just mention a few uh um you know I'll try to focus on the ones that are most in the forefront of our attention span today. Um and, and since I mentioned that transportation affects all of like, everything we do in our in our life, uh, the issues that we face from the ethical side are, are the same as they are at the local level, regional, national, and, and, and international, international level. But, but drilling those down to some of the current ones, uh, COVID-19 and pandemics, uh, as I mentioned, transportation uh, is the, probably the major cause of the spread of, of pandemics and finding ways to limit that spread while at the same time using transportation to try to uh, uh, come out of this pandemic uh, and previous and future pandemics is a, uh, is, is a, is a big issue. The economy uh, and uh, in this case, economic recovery that we're, that we're facing, what role does, tra- th- does can transportation play in uh, helping us to claw out of this uh, basically depression economic depression that we're that we're in and how can we do that in a way that's fair and ethical and takes into account the diversity of the populations not only in the united states but but around the world uh big issue for me is climate change um transportation is has now uh, become the largest uh, generator of greenhouse gases by sector now surpassing the uh the power grid uh so again transportation is a a cause of that issue uh exacerbates that issue um but also can be part of the solution if we if we do things correctly in the future equity uh there's a whole conversation we could have on on equity and how transportation in the past has has exacerbated the inequities uh, across populations um, but also some of the ways that transportation can help lead to some of the uh, some of the solutions um, and finally i guess i would mentioned uh, new technologies and uh, new services that are becoming available as tools and transportation and some of the ways that we can use those um, to to really address some of the ethical issues that uh, that, that face us uh, but also if we don't do it the right way how of some of those technologies and those services can could make things even even worse especially for vulnerable populations
0: all right well let's let's dive into some of those a little bit more and you've mentioned the piece of equity and vulnerable populations so maybe maybe we'll just start there and i know that you recently were part of a group that wrote a transportation sector statement in response to the Black Lives Matter protests and a lot of the activism that we've been seeing over the last several months. And one thing that you wrote in there was that the transportation industry is linked to a history of perpetuating oppression. So I was wondering if you could say more about that statement and where that came from and what that means, because I think... Again, most of us just riding around on our bikes or subways or, you know, cars or whatever aren't, aren't usually thinking about that. So where did that come from?
1: Sure. So, yeah, let me, let me give you a couple of examples on, on that, Julie. Um, going back to the, to the 1950s when interstates were being constructed throughout the country, the interstate system was uh, approved and funded by Congress in 1956. And in the 50s and 60s, uh, those routes were were being planned and those facilities were being constructed. And a lot of those facilities were constructed through cities, through urban areas, uh, basically right through areas where, where populations existed who really didn't have a voice, minority populations, lower income uh, populations, no, with little thought to the impacts on, on those pop, on those populations, uh, Again, not so much uh, was this, this wasn't done so much on purpose, but it was just done out of more neglect and insensitivity, I guess to, to uh, understanding what the impacts could be. Uh, for instance, I remember when I was uh, in college uh, doing a, a paper, a research paper. And part of what I had to do was to go and interview some officials. Um, How did they take into account some of these social impacts on vulnerable populations within urban areas? And I interviewed people at the state DOT levels and and local levels. And when I asked that question, again, this was back in the early seventies, they just looked at me uh, like in the Christmas story, like I had lobsters growing out of my ears (laughs) <laughs> and so what we got just we just never really took that into account. We just listened to the to the community feedback that we heard, and of course, the community feedback that they got was mainly from those who uh, who had a voice. Uh, and as we've seen some of the results, many of the results of that today with interstate highways going right through what used to be uh, vibrant neighborhoods, um, and uh, transit services is also has a. Um, a history behind it in terms of, uh, of those kinds of impacts of uh, the bus systems that, that were expanded to subway systems uh, a lot of the recent expansions over the last few decades of, of inner city subway systems have really been expansions to serve suburban commuters with us uh, with the with these systems not really taking into account and putting enough emphasis on improving services and spending some of those resources on the the inner cities. Uh, As a result, city buses are still overcrowded, and there's a lack of door-to-door access for those who need it in in those inner cities. And as a lot of the jobs have moved to the suburbs, uh, there is not a lot of transit service that takes people from the inner city out to the suburbs in the morning, kind of the reverse commute, uh, and and back again in in the evenings, everything's in. In reverse, so those kinds of things really do tend to uh, accelerate uh, and exacerbate those those inequities. Um, now there are some good examples too of uh, transportation in terms of those 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 issues. Uh, all this began to turn around as far as the interstates go in nineteen. Uh, I think it was 1960s, mid-1960s. There's a landmark paper, a case called Overton Park, Memphis, versus the U.S. DOT. And in that, that established the, the, uh, the law and the practice that regular citizens could rise up and challenge uh, the locations of, of interstates and new highways to their communities. Overton Park was a park, park, a public park. So the government felt that that was an easy thing to to build a highway through because uh, uh, they weren't, wouldn't uh, come up with a lot of opposition because they weren't displacing too many homes that way. But they were going right through a park and just pretty much dividing up a, a neighborhood that relied on that park. But the citizens rose up, filed a court case, and uh, up to the Supreme Court uh, it was decided in favor of the, the citizens. So. So that gave them a voice there. And then the other the keystone, I think, was the uh, National Environmental Policy Act of 1970. And while that law in the United States mainly was meant to protect the environment, it basically gave citizens a tool and a process to voice their concerns over the locations of these, of these projects. And uh, gave them an open process through open hearings and, and, and so forth, and that has made a big difference over the years as, a, as, as well. And so, so there is good news too. Um, and uh, uh, I don't know if you want to talk about the civil rights movement as well and and the relationship between that and transportation.
0: Yeah, I, uh, let's, let's put a pin in that and come back to that in just a second. Okay. I did just want to ask you a little bit more about when When roads are built in this way, when communities are not successful against stopping a highway coming through, like you mentioned that that would have different kinds of impacts on the community, and obviously the initial displacement that happens when the road is built is an obvious one. But I know you've mentioned before some of the longer term effects as well, like you know the the air pollution that then is part of that community for ever, um, the way that poverty usually increases in those areas around a big interstate um, traffic-based violence. Like There was there was other things too that I think were, that I've heard you mention before that were more long-term factors that came as a result of those projects. I was wondering if you could just speak a bit more to a few of those.
1: Yes, uh, you mentioned pollution and of course those Those impacts of uh, increased air pollution on a continuing basis over years and decades affects the public health of those communities, uh, people in those communities as well. There's studies that show that uh, part of the one of the reasons that uh, um, diseases and and uh, earlier mortality rates in urban areas uh, one of the causes of of that is uh, breathing more unhealthy air and being that close to those kinds of air pollution generators on a continuing basis over over time. Economically, uh, dividing up a community uh, like that uh, destroys businesses, it hurts access to businesses. Uh, The traffic that is on those facilities uh, passes right through, in many cases, just over the top of uh, what used to be a thriving community and doesn't stop there to... uh, to take advantage of the businesses that would have been there, and to to feed into that that economy, they're just basically pass through pass through vehicles. So that obviously has has big adverse impacts on on those areas as 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 well. Uh, the, the city I grew up in, Syracuse, New York, is a is a perfect case in point. Uh, they have two interstates that go right through the heart of the city: one north south and one east. One east and west, and those are overpasses. Underneath those overpasses is just kind of vacant um, land, that, and and concrete and asphalt parking lots, and uh, uh, very very depressing. Now it's, now it's time to reconstruct one of those highways, and after a long process, it looks like they are going to uh, reroute that highway, that north south highway, around the city on a bypass and change the, the routes that goes through the city now into a surface street uh, so that that may help bring the community back together again so that's so that's a positive note I think in some cases we've learned from those those mistakes of the past and hopefully we're on the right track to correcting uh, some of those um, but there's but there's a long way to go but you're right there are many long-term impacts of, uh, of some of those earlier decisions uh, that that were made, and hopefully we can uh, start to move away from those and, and uh, have a more positive approach in the future.
0: And I know that you said that a lot of this planning was more due to like insensitivity or neglect rather than intentional. But I'm I'm aware that a lot of the context that I work in internationally, especially in conflict cities. Or post-conflict cities. Um, Belfast is a good example of this, Beirut as well. In those cities, uh, there you know, there are actually uh, interchanges, roads, other kinds of infrastructure that were intentionally built to separate or divide communities. And some of that was you know, what some may have seen as, as well-intentioned separation. But it created a separation that then, you know, created uh, d- communities ended up being divided for much longer than, than even planners, I think, envisioned. So I was wondering if that's something that you see also in the U.S. or North American context.
1: Yes, there was definitely some of, some of that uh, in the U.S. as well. In the, uh, in the 50s and the 60s, uh, suburbanization, of course, was starting to take hold. There was white flight from the cities and uh, a, a lot of those who had moved to the suburbs uh wanted easier access in and out of the of the cities so uh to where the jobs still were primarily within the in these cbds the central business districts so they pushed for bigger and uh, uh faster highways to increase their you know, increase their commute uh, uh, accessibility and that in turn led to more white flight in cities because it was easier to get to and from those, uh, those outer suburbs and those exurbs than, than it was before. It made that, that commute more feasible. And so, uh, and so those who could afford it, uh, they could afford their own vehicles. They didn't have to rely on public transportation, uh, moved out to the suburbs and those who couldn't were left in, in the inner cities, which, uh, again, uh, accelerated that entire, that entire episode. Now, I don't think that everybody who was involved making those decisions um, had uh, that in mind when they when they made those decisions. Uh, again, I think a lot of them were responding just to uh, public pressure, uh, but of course, there's always that undercurrent that was uh, that that existed, and as it still does today.
0: Yeah, and you've talked about this 1950s, 1960s time period a lot when transportation was or in the u s transportation infrastructure was really coming into place, but you know most of so much of what what I focus on that time period for is the civil rights movement, which you mentioned before too, and you are looking at that time period through an activism or a social movement's perspective, and just seeing how much of the activism was anchored around transportation from you know, the Montgomery bus boycotts to, um, you know, the freedom rides, even going way back before that, I think Plessy versus Ferguson was about railroad cars. And even up to the present day in, again, other work I've done other places, you know, so much of we see as effective activism is being located around transportation, either pushing for integration or, um, you know, blocking key roads or bridges to make a really strong protest statement. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit more to that, how transportation intersects with activism in a very central way, especially in the U.S.
1: Sure. Yeah, because transportation affects every aspect of our life. It certainly affects that and is affected, is affected by it. Uh, you mentioned a couple of examples of uh, the modern civil rights movement in the U.S., uh, really began in 1955 when Rosa Parks uh, uh, refused to uh, to get up and move to the back of a bus. Um, the Freedom Riders in 1961, um, everyone remembers what the uh, the violence that occurred there. But the underlying purpose of that of, of the Freedom Riders was to force enforcement of court decisions that had already been made ruling the segregated buses were unconstitutional and in the south that was not being enforced so the freedom riders were their their, their primary purpose was to showcase and pretty much shame the, the southern states into enforcing those laws and the, the court decisions that were already on the books so again that that revolved around around transportation as as well so so yeah, the example that you cited, Plessy versus Ferguson, is a, is is another. Uh, it just goes to show that that I think that it's not the services themselves that are so much the key uh, as it is the people who make the laws and who who make the regulations and who handle the enforcement. Is how they care. It's how they implement those decisions and how they carry them out. That's key. Whether it's transportation or education or the economy or any other part of our society, I think transportation is is pretty much part of that that entire vortex where where all of this all of this comes together. So we're in transportation. We're, we're not not unique, uh, but we that means we also have the same responsibility as those other sectors to, to step up and to do our part to uh, uh, address these these critical issues.
0: You are listening to The Julie Norman Show. Um, well, I want to just touch on a few of the other issues then that you mentioned and those that also depend a lot on political will, on policy, on people kind of doing uh, you doing their part beyond, uh, beyond just transportation. So you mentioned climate change. So I was wondering if we could go back to that a little bit and that of course to me right now intersects in an interesting way with covid also because on the one hand you know as we've talked about people are traveling a lot less this year and not only car travel but but air travel in particular um you know potentially lowering pollution um and yet uh and yet we know that's that's a much this will probably be a small little you know, blip in the bigger scheme of things with, with climate change. So can you speak more to how you know, the transportation sector and industry, you know, one would think, has an interest in making sure that transportation itself continues? But to what extent is climate change being factored in to those decisions right now?
1: Sure. So let's. So let's talk about uh, you know, the current situation that we're in with uh, this COVID crisis and how it relates to uh, to climate change and so forth uh, and related, to related issues because it all kinds of kind of ties together. Uh, as far as recovering from the pandemic and what's going to happen in the coming years, this this is the the great unknown because like everything else, <laughs> uh, everything depends on how the virus itself plays out. Uh, But transit is a key question, a key question here, both in terms of of the pandemic and in terms of uh, how we address climate change in in the future. Uh, Conventional transit is essential uh, to many workers, but it's especially critical to the essential workers, as this pandemic has demonstrated over and and over again.
0: And And when you say conventional transit, what, what does that mean?
1: I'm talking primarily the buses and the buses and subway systems okay. uh, as opposed to ride sharing and, and, and uh, some of the newer services. but but, uh, but buses and subways uh, uh, they, they are will be critical in, in all of this. Now there are some who point out that well, look at everybody who's been telecommuting uh, over, the, over the last few months, all the people have been telecommuting. Uh, maybe that is the answer and so i guess i would counter that with saying yes that has some great potential um, but just relying on more people telecommuting is not going to come close to uh to doing the trick first thing to remember is that only about 30 percent of the jobs can be done that exist today can be done from home at least in the united states that's the, the current estimate also Um, when you're talking about working from home, commuting trips primarily impact just rush hour, and commuting trips are only about 30% of the total number of trips that we take in an average day. Um, And also that those working from home tend to make additional kind of non-linked trips uh, for errands and recreation. In other words, if they're if they're commuting to and from work, then they, they link the trips on the way home. They'll stop and get some groceries or pick up the, their dry clean or this, this or that. When they're working from home, they'll make separate trips for each of those each of those things. So while well, there'll probably be some lasting increases in telecommuting um, to help offset any future drop in, in transit use following this, this, uh, this pandemic, it's probably not going to be enough by itself to, uh, to make, up, make up the difference. And I think the, the the emergence of a vaccine is going to be is going to be critical here. Um, but again, trying to trying to go with what you were asking about is where how likely is it that that could rebound from this is going to get us all back to normal? Um, I'm not sure what, what normal is going to be after all this is done. But looking back in history. Uh, If you look back to the 14th century, the medieval times, the the Black Death Plague uh, killed millions of people. And what followed immediately after that Black Death Plague in the 14th century was what? It was the Renaissance. And the 1918 Spanish flu, uh, again, killed uh, between 650,000 and a million people in the United States alone within... Two years after that flu dissipated, uh, we entered the Roaring Twenties, the, 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 the great economic rebound there. So, I'm not saying that that this virus uh, will going through it will lead to a, a, a big explosion of uh, of uh, economic activity, but what what history does show us is that the world's population is pretty resilient. And the two, the two examples I mentioned, uh, there wasn't even a vaccine that got us out of those. It was just the, those, uh, viruses through herd, herd immunity finally went away and people even without the assurance of any kind of a vaccine, uh, went back to their normal activities with more gusto than, than ever, than ever before. So, so there's hope there, um, uh, that after we get out of this, that, uh, Um, transit will will pick up again, and that's going to be a big key to uh, addressing the economy, but but also uh, uh, the return to to normal. Um, But I do think this pandemic will leave footprints. Um, I think the return to transit will probably be somewhat gradual because people will still have to overcome the, the fear, whether real or imagined. Of being in close quarters. Uh, as I mentioned, the telecommuting, I think, will be uh, at a greater level than it has been in the past, working from home. And I also think that communities will be more attuned to making streets be places instead of just thoroughfares. Uh, during this pandemic, we've seen as streets get closed, as traffic's been down, We see more streeteries, uh, um, bike lanes, pedestrian walkways, and so forth. So I think we will see we will see more of that. Um, so that kind of gets at the COVID nineteen question. You also wanted to talk about the impacts on uh, climate change. Yeah. Second party question.
0: Yeah. Um, let me let me just ask you a little bit more on what you just said though about. Um, about the sense of community maybe taking a more primary role after COVID and, and some of that I think even starting, you know, in the years prior to COVID with thinking more about, you know, walkable communities and, and whatnot. Um, and I know, like in London, for example, knowing that a lot of people probably don't want to be on the tube anytime soon, you know, there, there is more effort to have bike lanes and and bike shares, or as you said, more kind of walkable spaces. And I was wondering what what you're seeing with the rollout of those, how does that map onto the equity issues that we were speaking about just a minute ago? Like, are those options being, uh, you know, rolled out in a way that is allowing for accessibility to you know, arguably the people who need them most, who, who need to be able to get to work, or who don't have have jobs where they can telecommute, um, or are the bike shares, walkable communities, whatnot are are those more in um, you know, in more privileged areas?
1: Yeah. So again, so much depends on addressing the right policies and and uh, passing the right laws and regulations, and enforcing them and carrying. Them carrying through on them so uh we've seen a movement i think uh over the over the decades following world going back to world war ii uh we were building uh suburbs and subdivisions with cul-de-sacs and uh uh wide wide uh, uh neighborhood roads with no sidewalks and everything was geared around geared around the vehicle and that accelerated a trend from the time that the automobile became supreme, where streets went from being places, uh, as I said before, being, being thoroughfares uh, for just for the, just for the vehicles. Uh, there started to be a pushback in that around the same time as we talked about earlier uh, with the increase in public involvement uh, where communities were saying, hey, uh, we want to be what we want to be. Uh, and again, transportation is a means to an end, not an end in itself. And it shouldn't dictate what a community looks like. Uh, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't dictate what our culture is, is going to be. Uh, we shouldn't be able to dictate what transportation is going to be in order to uh, help us achieve our vision of, 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 of community. So in the 70s, uh, again, consistent with, with some of these movements, we began, began to see a return to neo-traditional neighborhoods, uh, as the term was, was coined back back then, and that was bringing back uh, uh, the, the downtown environment, the sense of the sense of place, walkability, uh, biking, uh, and 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 so forth, so that uh, streets were really places where people could people could congregate and use, and, and not just uh, not not just vehicles. And that movement has continued since the seventies, uh, through, through today. And you can see new developments now around the United States being focused more on, on a sense of, a sense of place than, than before. Now, as far as the equity implications of that, that still needs to play, needs to play out, uh, that movement in the suburbs is now, uh, extended back into the, into the cities uh with redoing neighborhoods and, and historical historical buildings and, and row houses and and, uh, and many other many other measures the difficulty of course is is regentrifying those communities without making them so expensive that you're driving out the people who who currently live there you want to provide a sense of place for those people to uh, to to enjoy and, and not to drive them out, and that's been mixed success so far. Uh, those cities that have really some cities that, some cities that have really tried to to uh, uh, to re gentrify to limit uh, the overbuilding in their down in their downtown areas and can create more of a sense of place have found that the real estate values have skyrocketed and. And they've driven out those uh, those more vulnerable populations making it more difficult for, for them and so we need to find ways to blend in uh both the needs of uh of those populations with without the wherewithal to to afford that kind of uh, that kind of redevelopment and transportation is, is a key to that again transportation providing access to those to those areas um, mixed house mixed housing developments done Mixed use to retail, land use and transportation have always been a push and pull kind of a, a relationship, which comes first to the change in land use or the trans, change in transportation. And that needs to be ironed out. So, yeah, we still have a ways to go. There are still some issues there, you're right.
0: Well, and, and looking ahead then more, um, I know we wanted to touch a little bit more on climate change. So, speak a little bit more about what is going on in the sector with that and also with new technologies and maybe how those two things intersect but where do we see things going it sounds like maybe a lot of the challenges have been identified but how are things looking moving ahead
1: yeah well as as we talked about earlier uh, motor vehicle emissions are now the leading cause of greenhouse gas emissions so until we do something about uh, the exhaust uh, coming out of uh, motor vehicles and uh, regu- regulate that, and, and and the European nations and and others have done a lot more on that than the United States has, especially recently. Uh, that's that's a key to uh, to addressing to addressing climate change, and can, but also our policy. Go ahead. Can I?
0: And how, how do you see that happening? Like, is that more of a scale question? Like, getting more people on transit? Is it a um, you know, a a technology thing with making more fuel-efficient cars? Is it a carbon tax? Like, how do you do that?
1: Yes, all of those things. There's there's no one silver bullet here. Um, And on the vehicle side, uh, I think what you will see happening is that the motor vehicle manufacturers are going to comply with the most restrictive, uh, in their view, uh, most forward-looking, in the view of me and others, uh, they're going to comply with those rules, those that require electric electrification of the vehicles, and, and, and so forth, uh, because they want to they want to manufacture one vehicle that works for everyone. So, if enough countries, and here the European countries, I think are taking the, the lead, uh, place those those higher level requirements on the motor vehicle manufacturers even if the united states has lower requirements the vehicle manufacturers are going to manufacture vehicles that can sell everywhere in europe and in the united states they don't want they don't want to manufacture separate vehicles uh, because of the economy of scale so i've got great hopes that over the next over the coming decades that the percentage of vehicles that will be fuel efficient Electric vehicles, hybrids, plug-in hybrids, and so forth, is going to dramatically increase. In the United States, only about one percent of the vehicles right now, in use are, are electric vehicles, but I think that's going to be a, uh, a, exponentially increasing percentage in the in the coming years. So, so that's a that's a big key. Yeah. So I, I do think the, uh, the the carbon tax is uh, is. Something that's right now politically uh, improbable in the United States, uh, but again, I do think over time that that's probably the the going to be the answer to uh, one of the answers to to a lot of this because it's 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 market based and uh, I think that's going to have a going to have a big impact. But but yeah. Uh, Again, vehicles um, and uh, and yeah, the, the the degree to which we are building to accommodate the growth in vehicles is, is not sustainable in the United States. Uh, the increase in vehicle miles of travel each year is about one to two percent, but compounded over time, uh, we have pretty much built out uh, the capacity of our of our systems and. And I don't think we, there's much going to be much new building of new capacity for private sector motor vehicles. What yes. is possible is that we can use those facilities more more efficiently. So what do I what do I what do I mean by that? You mentioned uh, uh, automated vehicles, and and uh, the other part that plays into that is uh, shared shared mobility services. It's possible that those two uh, innovations more recent more recently innovations will have can have a, a big impact on us being able to, able to address uh, uh, climate change and, and a whole lot of other other issues. So, well,
0: and another thing that I wanted to ask you about that I know you've worked a bit on is the question of accessibility and how that intersects with transportation. And I'll just say, you know, that's one thing that I think living outside the United States, I've noticed more. And just the attention that the US does give to accessibility and making sure that persons with disabilities can have access in a way that's, that's different than, than most of the rest of the world. So can you speak a little bit more to that?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I think in our profession in transportation, this issue really came to the forefront as far as being an integral part of what we do. As a result of the American with Disabilities Act of 1990, uh, you know, that act required uh, accessibility for the for the disabled across all public services and transportation was a big. It is a big is a big part of that. That's what led us to start looking at the redesign of vehicles, everything from buses uh, with kneel down buses and and uh, and, and wheelchair uh, lifts to the facilities themselves. You see that in the United States the, the, the curb ramps uh, are pretty ubiquitous now, audible audible pedestrian signals and, and, and so forth. I was lucky enough to serve on a uh, federal advisory committee uh, for the implementation of that American Disabilities Act and it was interesting because we brought together traffic engineers and uh, representatives from the uh, disabled community to work together on some very specific uh, accessibility on public rights rights of way, and it was it was amazing to me how we were able to come together on some on some solutions, uh, t- talking about uh, the, the the ramps themselves, the traffic signals, uh, even something as divisive as uh, roundabouts, which are. More, more, more prevalent in, in Europe are now uh, catching hold big time in, in the United States and how we could handle uh, pedestrians, especially those with visual uh, impairments uh, and, uh, and the deaf on, on, on something as complicated as a, as, as a roundabout and how we we're able to come up with solutions. So just bringing uh, different communities together like that is the, is the key obviously to, uh, to, to a lot of things, not just transportation but having said that we still have a long way to uh, to go in the united states uh, i was looking at some statistics this morning from the bureau of transportation statistics of the usdot there are over 13 million individuals in the united states between the ages of 18 and 64 who have travel limiting disabilities now those 13.4 million, only 20 percent of those have full or part-time jobs. Now it's not just because of transportation that they aren't employed, but that's a big part of it. So if we could provide uh, transportation services uh, to to those people, we could make a huge difference in in their lives. Uh, and again, we talked about uh, driverless vehicles, and that's one place where where driverless vehicles could have a huge impact by providing door-to-door service, first-mile, last-mile connections uh, for for many for many of those people, that they would not have to rely on uh, being able to drive a vehicle, or have to rely on a vehicle driven by by somebody by somebody else. Um, so that's one place where I think driverless vehicles, automated vehicles, can make a could make a huge difference. So uh, so a lot of work to be done, but we have made a fair amount of progress as a result of that uh, 1990
0: act. We'll go ahead and wrap things up in just a minute, but I just wanted to pivot out of the transportation topic for a last question, because I know in addition to the work that you do there in terms of being mindful of disparities and equity and whatnot, for, for years now you've also been volunteering um, outside of your, your regular work to help people um, find jobs. And I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit more about that and, and what you do and how you got started with that.
1: Oh, well, oh, thanks for asking about that. Uh, <clears throat> so I've, for the last 20 years or so, I've, been, I've worked for the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. And a group of us working for the, what we uh, called National Academies for short um, got into contact with the Community for Creative Nonviolence CCNV uh, which has been around for decades in Washington D.C. and now is uh, is the operator of the largest homeless shelter in D.C. and one of the largest in the world uh, and we teamed up with you to address the the reality that a lot of these people that live in that shelter don't have access to even applying for a job, uh, never mind being in the, the regular em, employment pool. So, how could we help with that? So, we set up a, so we set up a little volunteer run operation uh, where those who are interested in pursuing employment, who are uh, residents uh, of CCNV, uh, would, would set up appointments with us, and we would sit down with them, interview them, and then help them put together a, a resume. Uh, and many of these folks uh, had never put together a resume before. We put together a resume, and then we would help them use that resume to apply for positions uh, that they b- might be qualified for or have a chance to uh, Work for basically was trying to help people who find it, who are harder to employ, uh, to uh, give them a helping hand to to, to find that employment. Uh, some of these people, uh, some of these residents had past criminal records and they paid their debt to society. Others might have some mental disabilities that uh, might make it more difficult for them to to apply for some jobs, but they'd be qualified for for others. And so. You know, so it was up to us to try to help them, um, put together resumes, and then get online and apply for jobs. Because today, applying for a job is all about being online. And again, these folks didn't have any place to live. Never mind having access to uh, <laughs> to computers and, and and the internet. So we set up a little computer lab uh, within the uh, within the facility, um, and that's what we that's that's what we did. And uh, you know, our success rate uh, was was never in the. High double figures, uh, percentage-wise, by by any means. But for everyone that you did uh, land a position for, was a uh, was a was a big win. <clears throat> and and uh, and since leaving and mostly retiring from the National Academies, uh, moved about forty miles outside of D.C. and uh, now live in a community, Leesburg, Virginia, Northern Virginia. And they have a small nonprofit called Crossroads that does the, more or less the same thing. So I've been volunteering with, uh, with them, again, helping hard to employ applicants uh, with, with the resume preparations, with doing online job applications, but also taking it some steps further. We, we provide training for them in various areas uh, for, to help them with, uh, with not only obtaining employment, but keeping employment once they, once they get it uh, uh, interviewing skills, uh, dealing with, uh, complexities in the workplace, um, uh, and, uh, harassment and, and other aspects of, uh, of, of, of working and surviving in the, in, in the, in the job, job market, and then providing them with continuing counseling. So, so yeah, it's giving a little bit back, uh, to those who, uh, who need that helping hand.
0: In the volunteer work you've been doing or in your transportation work, is there anything on which your thinking has changed over the years? Something that maybe you believed when you first started out that you think differently about now?
1: Oh, for sure, many many things. Uh, Let me give you one or two examples. When I first started off in the transportation side of things, we kind of had that feeling that that mobility was just inherently good, uh, that being able to move people faster and, and more safely uh, was just by itself a, a good thing to, uh, to pursue. All, that all good things would come from that. Uh, um, and over the years, I've changed my feeling on that almost 180 degrees it's it's not the speed certainly safety is i haven't changed on that of course but but as far as just getting people to places faster um, that's not what it's all about it's providing people with access to economic opportunities to jobs to to other people like we start off our conversation, that's the most important. And doing so in a way that uh, protects the environment. Again, when I first started off, I was sensitive to minimizing the adverse effects on the environment. But now I think we have a greater responsibility and that is to not just minimize the adverse effects, but to improve improve the environment. Uh, uh, climate change has been a big factor in, in changing my views on, evolving my views on on, on that. Um, and I think, you know, we've talked a lot about equity today and that's appropriate because uh, uh, my sensitivity to vulnerable populations has definitely been heightened by my work in transportation, and seeing the adverse effects of some of our, our historical policies um, that we pursued on transportation, and also my work, my volunteer work that we just talked about, uh, a lot of these people with don't have jobs. It's from, most of them is through no fault of their own. They're just a, a victim of, of circum of circumstances, and. And I've really been impressed by, by many of them uh, that, we've, that we've helped over, over the years. Uh, these people are every bit as intelligent as, as anybody else out there uh, in, the, in, in the job market. Um, and all they need is a break. Uh, and so uh, being somebody that can help them possibly get a break is a, uh, is a is a big part of the the, volu- the volunteer effort so so yeah my, my views on both transportation and on, uh, on the volunteer side of things or job opportunities have, have evolved have evolved quite a
0: bit i'll end with uh the question that that we usually ask and that's if there's any books or other resources that you'd recommend to anyone that's not necessarily transportation related but just something that's had an impact on you
1: uh, well, that's an easy one for me. Uh, my favorite book is East of Eden by, by John Steinbeck. And you probably want to know why,
0: right? Yeah. <laughs> that's my favorite book, too. I don't think I knew that was your favorite book. but
1: Really? Okay. Uh, well, we need to talk more. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's my favorite book because it really takes a, I think, a, a, a real introspective look at the positive and darker sides of, of human nature and the constant struggle between the between the two um, as you well know it's, it's kind of based on the uh, book of Genesis and, and, and Cain and Abel and the thing I always remember about it is that the major theme of the novel is a word uh, or a phrase but in this case it's a that's a word Tim shell and throughout the book the characters are are debating what what is the meaning of Timshel in, in Genesis, um, you know, referring to uh, God's God's directive. But does it mean? Does Timshel mean that that God is directing us that thou shall do this or thou will do that? You um, what's 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 the meaning of this? And they finally have a revelation and come to an agreement that the term means thou thou mayest and to me that's always struck home uh you know regardless of whether we follow a religious faith or rationalism or stoicism or whatever guides us even if it's just our own intuition that we as humans have been given the ability to be able to make intelligent choices and it's what we do with that ability, and it's the choices we make using that ability that determines our ultimate success or failure as a uh, as a species. So, so I just always try to remember that thou thou mayest, and that's that's what sticks with me from that book. And I've read it three times, and and uh, I'll probably read it several more times before all is said and done.
0: All right, well, we'll need to chat more about that on on another podcast or off the podcast. But but thank you so much for all your time today and for a great chat about transportation and lots of other good stuff.
1: Oh, well, thank you for having me. I've I've enjoyed our conversation and look forward to having more in the future. (laughs)
0: Likewise. (laughs) You've been listening to The Julie Norman Show. Thank you once again to my guest today, Mark Norman, and thank you all of you for listening. Original music for this podcast is by Kevin McLeod. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating. If you have any questions or comments, you can get in touch with me by email, norman.julie at gmail.com. Stay well, and please join us next time.